Hello, and welcome to Money Moves. I'm your host, Samuel McCullough. In the past few episodes, we've talked about money, its core attribute, the NQA principle. We've also talked about a taxonomy in money as well, too. In this episode, I've asked Dr. George Selgin to come on and to give an account of private monies. Uh, Dr. Selgin is one of the foremost authorities on the history of private money and a free banking system. He's, he's been credited with developing a, a modern free banking system. Uh, Dr. Selgin is part of the Cato Institute. He was one of the first econo- economists to... He was one of the first economists to ever uh, write about Bitcoin and to give his ideas to Bitcoin. And he is one of the uh, most well-respected economists when it comes to stablecoins. So I wanted to have him on today to come and uh, discuss a bunch of topics. One thing that we do mention a couple of times during this episode is a paper by Gordon and Jang, uh, which I'll post in the show notes, uh, which talks about the the need for a sovereign to control the money supply. And I thought this was really important part of our discussion. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get enough time to talk about it. We're going to have to have uh, Dr. Selgin on at a later point, uh, because I think that the ideas contained within the paper, we should discuss more. Uh, and hopefully we can have Gordon and Zhang on at a future date as well, too. So I'd like to hear their side of the story um, that they put into the paper and ask them some questions as well, too. So um, I hope you guys enjoy this and let's hop into the episode with Dr. Selgin. All right. Today I am joined by Dr. George Selgin. He is a senior fellow and director emeritus at the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives at the Cato Institute. Um, I asked Dr. Selgin to come on today to um, wrap back to where we were in the first episode of this Money Moves podcast and to uh, come back and and readdress the this this principle that uh, modern economists have given to money that the the core attribute for money should be that it should be redeemable at par on demand with no questions asked um, and it always wasn't this, it, or actually money wasn't always like this right it wasn't always didn't have these this core attribute that it has in today's economy so uh, Dr. Selgin, well, thank you for coming on to this episode, and um, I'd like to uh, get your understanding about, about what this actually means for money to have this core attribute. Well, uh, thanks, Sam. It's uh, it's nice of you to allow me to talk about uh, this and uh, related subjects on your show. Uh, the, this idea that money should trade at par, it, it is, it's not something that I disagree with, uh, we want money to be the ultimately liquid asset in society so that we can exchange with uh, it and not have uh, uh, spreads to deal with, ideally, ideally, because that adds to the cost of exchange. So, in fact, uh, there have often been, as you mentioned, cases where money's uh, things that were widely used in exchange uh, did not always trade at par. They weren't perfectly liquid in that sense, but uh, but it's it's also true uh, that uh, that par exchange is the most convenient kind of exchange. It's mostly relevant when we're dealing with uh, substitutes for an economy's 
basic money. So in the gold standard days, for example, or before when silver was more important, uh, a standard medium, you, you, uh, you wanted your substitutes that were issued by banks, particularly there weren't very many other issuers of substitutes back when. You wanted those to be real equivalents to a certain uh, uh, amount of silver or gold. You didn't want them to be a little bit different because that was a nuisance. So um, I know we're going to get on to talking about Gordon and Zhang and their work on this yeah. topic. And I have a million disagreements <laughs> with them, which I hope I'll be able to express. Uh, but, um, but I don't disagree with their uh, uh, claim that uh, uh, it's desirable that money, anything that's used as money, including private products, should be par value. That is, should uh, be accepted without people having to wonder if it's really worth what it says it's worth. So I don't have any problem with that. My disagreement with them is that they cherry pick the evidence to make it sound like private monies are never able or seldom able to achieve that characteristic of being widely acceptable, no questions asked, currency. And I, I know that that's wrong. I also know, yeah. we can talk about this more, but when, when it has been the case that there have been uh, problems using private currency, it's seldom been the fault of the private issuers or the private market. It's been government interference that has made it difficult for them to be as good as they could be, these private currencies. Yeah, I guess the issue is is that with these with the at par on demand, no questions asked, right? Is that when it, it seems that the idea is that central bankers put this before everything, right? Where uh, the any any issues of of currency um, like valuation or the ability for it to hold the peg, uh, mainly in reference to uh, uh, this this kind of modern system of money where we have where most of it is is debt based now you have uh, you know debt that's you know shared between all these different entities institutions uh, and so when there is some sort of uh, crisis or systemic issue uh, or breakdown within the system uh, there's a um, demand from these institutions to the central bank that they hold the the peg at par on demand no matter the cost right. And I think the the difference between this monopolized uh, central bank money that uh, regime that we have now versus a, a private money regime is that you know the sensitivity of uh, private dollars to to pricing uh, allows for the market to see because the market picks up on everything really quick, right? It's it's impossible to hide any information from the market um, unless there's some sort of fraud, uh, and so in a, in an open and transparent system. Uh, you would expect that any sort of deficiency in, in collateral or uh, issues with these privately issued monies, if if they you know were allowed to flourish, uh, it would be translated into the price pretty quickly. So, um, you know, I, I I think that when when I see it from the uh, central banking side uh, and the monopoly that they have, I just see as that that risk, right? So. If the private monies are able to take that pricing risk in which they're in which the peg can deviate, you know, a, a little bit, right, based on the, the market's um, interpretation of them, uh, and 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 how much risk they have, when you have a central bank that comes in, that risk just gets transferred somewhere else, right? Either it's through interest rates or it gets into relative pricing versus 
other currencies. Um, and so there, there's almost like a masking of that risk by the central bank, and it just pushes it out to other other parts of the economy, well, which let, may have yeah, good or bad intended consequences. Let's be careful. Uh, of course, we want the marketplace to properly value all kinds of assets, and and uh, and we believe it has a tendency to do that. Uh, and it's, in fact, uh, Gary Gorton, who we'll be talking about more, he, he mm -hmm. noted that the pricing of banknotes in the antebellum market, when those notes of private state banks did command discounts relative to par if they were far from home, many of them, that the pricing was efficient. So, yeah, markets can price risk and and other factors efficiently. Most of the cost uh, discounts on those banknotes, by the way, had nothing to do with risk. It was transportation costs to get them back mm. where you could. It was a redemption cost ultimately, but mostly that was transportation. Now that's that's so that's fine. Except with money, the means of exchange is. It is desirable to have par currency. It, it's more convenient. It's less troublesome to deal with. And in a, in a marketplace where you have firms whose monies do stay at par, do command their par value, or do circulate at par, they can be worth even more, but they can circulate it. If they can circulate at par, it's more convenient. Those will tend to be more popular as exchange media that, than ones that, uh, that are not uh, always at par. Finally, uh, the fact that money is at par doesn't necessarily mean that there's risk, but it's being passed on to somewhere else. Central banks do have the capacity to, as it were, cover up risks with promises of bailouts. And insurance can do the same thing, of course, keep money at par mm -hmm. when the institution is actually rather wobbly and uh, in a market without insurance, its liabilities might be discounted or refused altogether. So I, of course, I don't think that's a good thing, but it's also true that private money issuers are able to come up with arrangements and have in the past where their, their liabilities circulated par with no help from any government guarantees and the like. And then those liabilities are both very convenient. Uh, they, they do pass the no questions asked test, uh, but it isn't because of any state uh, support. It's simply because they've come up with arrangements to keep redemption costs low and they have enough capital and other things, collateral, if you will, to mm -hmm. uh, make the risk of their currency seem very, very low. So uh, I think in a marketplace, you might have different kinds of uh potential or actual exchange media, not all of which always circulate at par and it yet might have a purpose that makes its non-par circulation okay. But I want to insist that private marketplaces can come up with plenty of good, uh, no questions asked media if you let them, if you create the right circumstances. And that's where I think uh, Gordon and Zhang go wrong in trying to deny that privately issued currencies can also have that quality, which they think is an attribute only of state issued or heavily state regulated currencies. Based on my reading of their literature, uh, it seems that their understanding is that there's always going to be some sort of crisis that comes for private money. It doesn't matter where it is or how good the collateral is. Uh, there's always going to be a crisis, whether you know, there's a, a bank run because of the 
collateral makeup that they have. They've, they've taken too much risk. Or on the opposite side, their collateral is too, too, it's too good. And so in times of crisis, other institutional uh, actors uh, or, or retail would then flee to that stable coin and affect interest rates in a way affect interest rates in a way which would be negative for the economy as a whole. So like the the argument should be that we should just ban all these private stable coins, we should just take them out of circulation and allow for the uh, for the sovereign to maintain its monetary authority. Yeah, it's hard to know where to start with that set of arguments. First of all, let's get to some fundamentals. Uh first of all, the notion of sovereign money is obnoxious. It's a medieval uh, survivor. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's really an anachronism. Uh, from the days when absolute monarchies wrested control of money, uh, which they started doing actually in ancient times by monopolizing the minting of coins, it's well known that these monopolies of coins often abused their right to coinage. They didn't exercise their monopoly for the sake of making sure everybody had the best possible coins. They exercised it so they could abuse coinage by altering the weight and metallic content of their coins and, uh, and doing so in a way that helped them line their coffers to pay, pay the troops, etc. <laughs> Just declare that the coins were twice as much or put half as much gold in it and leave the face value unchanged. This is notorious. What's less well known is that we had pl plenty of private mints. I mean, not plenty, but we had episodes in which, for a change, competitive minting went on. And we know that in those competitive circumstances, coiners had incentives, powerful ones, to keep their coins' values uh, consistent with what their declared values. There were no debasements of private coinage. A firm that produced light coins relative to rivals would go out of business eventually, just as like a car manufacturer that makes lemons. So um, anyway, it all, this whole notion of money being a sovereign thing that is best produced by governments is, I say, a remnant of absolutist thought of medieval times. And uh, no one should be allowed to get away with it today. Calling money a sovereign entity is, is, uh, is really begging the question. When when we look at the actual historical record of private versus so-called sovereign, that is government monies, what we see, the big picture, if you stand back, is private monies becoming important precisely as government monies fail. The first banks got their start from the fact that coinage was so crappy and the bank money that they created as a substitute was like uh, as it were, uh, virtual perfect coins. That's what the bank money began as, as a way for traders to have something that represented what coins should have been like, but what weren't like because the states couldn't, wouldn't keep them uniform and keep them at, uh, their metallic content consistent. So you had all these motley different coins. That's how bank money got started. The deficiencies of government monopolized coins and no, no historian of banking who doesn't recognize that is competent. And when people like Gordon and Zhang try to make it out that uh, it's the private money that's deficient and only the state money that's good, they've got it completely ass backwards from a broad historical perspective. 
now um, uh, private banknotes and government monies have often circulated together. The idea that uh, private money issuers have been usurpers is really not generally true in the United States, but also elsewhere in the world. Private money has been the most important form ex of exchange media for most of history. It has, in modern times, consisted mainly of bank deposits and money market funds, and now we have some stable coins and other things. But if you look at the sum total of these private exchange media, uh, they are more important in value terms than the government's, the stuff the government has supplied directly, whether it was coin in the past or Federal Reserve notes today. Those are the small change, literally, of our coinage or our monetary system. So private money has always been important, hasn't been a sideshow, uh, and it hasn't been a uh, completely defective sideshow, as Gordon and Zhang would have us think. And, uh, well, and so I, I want to I, talk I about it, crises, I, Sam. I didn't get yeah, to that. Yeah, I'm yeah. oh, sorry, but but I, I um, we'll, we'll hop into the crisis next. But I wanted to ask about like, what specifically is it about token-based money that gets everyone riled up versus uh, account-based money? So the money that you know sits in your bank account versus a like a, these yeah, new stable coins yeah. that we have, right? Um, why why is it so different with them in this uh, demand for control? This because is a very you have, good, you have yeah. yeah. It's a very good question, Sam. Uh, economists, good ones, have long understood that account-based money and token-based money are very similar. Actually, it took a long time for them to you know get there, <laughs> and but if, if you go back far enough, certainly if you go to the early 19th century, you had a great deal of confusion that people believed that if a bank issued paper IOUs, that, that that was doing something radically different than issuing account-based IOUs. And, uh, and so the idea emerged that somehow we, uh, that a bank issuing paper IOUs was, was creating money in, 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 in a way that was more dangerous inherently than a bank that created account-type money, exchange media. And that idea caught on and it helped to inform the monopolization of paper currency along the lines of the prior monopolization of coins by government. So paper currency, instead of paper currency issued by competing banks being equated with bank deposits and both being allowed to survive, uh, paper currency got looked upon as being too much like gold coins, and therefore, based on the fallacy that only governments are capable of minting good coins, uh, it, it, by analogy with that fallacy, governments were uh, able to rationalize monopolizing paper money. And, mm -hmm. uh, and they did, of course, and that's why we only have banks issuing deposits today. And that's why we have people getting all bent out of shape when they see any kind of token-based private currency. But the underlying economics of account-based and token-based uh, private currencies are really not very different, especially if we're talking about redeemable stuff, right? It boils down in both cases to wanting to make sure that it's easy to redeem them, it's low cost. And as long as that's true, 
arbitrage is going to keep the value of the money close to the official equivalent. So there, there is a, the history here really has uh, distorted things. We, we have a very warped view in, of private token money. And that's why I think studying the past history of private banknotes, when those were common, uh, is extremely important. But it's important, too, not to cherry-pick the examples you look at, as Gordon and Zhang do. They go around looking for yeah. every defective private token currency in the past, and they say, see, that's what it's like. And they systematically ignore or misrepresent the successful cases of private currency. And it's extremely obnoxious the way they do that uh, with selective use of sources, selective use of empirical evidence, and so on. I, I, I think it's a travesty to be quite uh, uh, blunt about it. Well, just to be, just to give like a high level overview of kind of the orthodox view of um, this, how these crises came about, is that mm. uh, back in the 1920s, there was this time of excess where uh, you had small individual uh, commercial banks who were lending to, you know, like farmers and other people uh, outside the periphery of the cities uh, who would then uh, take their uh, bank deposits and then lend them out as collateral to these uh, intermediary banks or even high power banks inside of New York City, uh, who then use that, those funds that came in from these small little commercial banks uh, and, and use that to lend out to traders who then went out and speculated on the stock market. Uh, and that led to the run-up, uh, the huge bubble of 1929, and also the crash after that. Uh, and, and from that, you had a, a, um, a huge systemic collapse uh, across many banks inside the United States. There was, um, I've, I've read some of the, um, the, the talks about it, or like the, what people were saying afterwards from a political pr perspective. And it was very moralistic. It was this kind of idea that uh, somehow there was like it was, it was very bad. What, like from a, like morally bad, what these banks had done to destroy the the lives of the their depositors uh, by lending out the money in this way, uh, and and that the the wrath and ruin that was created in the wake of the 1929 crash was deserved uh, by the U.S. you know population because of this this excess that they had engaged in, and so uh, you know the establishment of uh, the Glass Steagall Act. Uh, yeah. And uh, additionally, the um, uh, the the banking rules uh, that came out in uh, I think it was thirty three, uh, those are all necessary uh, to contain the uh, speculative impulses of the the bankers who uh, exist in this kind of like quasi unmoral or unmoral state, um, and that's where we are uh, today, or at least have been built on that today. Um, <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess that's uh, that's uh, one possible way to wrap up a bunch of different opinions about uh, about how the Great Depression came about. I, suffice to say that uh, um, the Depression had many causes. It won't do to try to explain uh, what happened by reference to developments in the United States only. You have to talk about the international gold standard and the way it was cobbled back together after World War I and, uh, and the way it started to fall apart uh, in the early 1930s. That's a big part of the story. Uh, uh, 
Uh, so it isn't, it, it certainly isn't just U.S. banks that are causing trouble or getting into right. trouble. But, but I, uh, if we want to talk about U.S. banks getting into trouble, this is a typical example of how ignoring the role that perverse regulations played gives you a wrong story and wrong morals to draw from the story. The vast majority of banks that failed in the United States, large, and there were large numbers that failed not just in the 30s, but already in the 1920s, huge thousands of banks were failing. The vast majority were, as you suggested, they were, uh, they were banks in the countryside. Now, most banks in the United States could not have any branches back then, even within their own states. Uh, and they certainly couldn't branch beyond their state boundaries, the boundaries of the states where they were chartered. And the result of this was a highly underdiversified banking system called a unit banking system. There were exceptions. There were some banks with branch networks within their states, but they were uh, relatively few and far between, and they did better in general than the unit banks. But most of the banks that failed were unit banks. They weren't diversified because they couldn't be. How can you diversify if you're in a farm town and that's all there is, is, is agriculture, quite possibly a single crop? Then the fate of your bank is bound up in, 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 unavoidably, inescapably, with the fate of that crop and of the farmers who are farming it. If in agricultural prices uh, fall, as they did uh, severely after World War I, farmers are going to have trouble paying back their debts. And banks that are heavily invested in uh, farm uh, uh, farming mortgages to farmers or otherwise are going to go belly up, and that's what happened. You didn't have any bank failures in Canada in the twenties or the well. You had one bank, one Canadian bank fell, failed in nineteen twenty three. Was their biggest bank failure, the Home Bank, and that was a, a big deal. However, that was it. You didn't have any other Canadian bank failures through the nineteen thirties. And you had no central bank and you had no deposit insurance throughout that time. So what was the difference? Branch banking. And the Canadian banks could issue notes, which most U.S. banks by, the, by then could not. So, you know, there are a lot of different ways to look at these episodes. You can tell a story where it's all the bad banks and, and the government comes to the rescue. Or you can tell a story where the government has boxed everything up. And if it left the banks more alone problems wouldn't have happened. I happen to think the second story is, is the easier story to tell, but the first one is by far the most popular. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, it, it, I think the, the, having read some of the primary literature from the time, I mean, it's, it's more the moralizing that came after where, um, you know, paired with this, uh, I, I mean, this is the thing that made the biggest impression on me is just the way that they talked about it in the sense of, uh, you know, we, we committed these sinful acts of, you know, lending out at, you know, too much interest yes, or too much right. speculative value. Yeah. And, and that, you know, we, we deserve this right yeah. after in, in the thirties. Yes. They vilified, uh, okay, this was particularly notorious, uh, before the, uh, during the time of the debates about the, uh, the, the federal reserve, you also had the Pujo committee looking into the big banks and all that. And some of the same kind of uh, uh, vilification of bankers uh, 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 was 
uh, going on again after the failures in the early part of uh, the depression. Uh, and, and it's true. They tried to lay the blame on the banks, some of which were culpable, by the way. There were some badly managed banks. There were some banks that uh, 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 clearly uh, were irresponsible. There always are a few bad apples. Um, but uh, the whole Glass-Steagall Act was essentially based on claims about the role of, role of banks and big banks, especially in the, in the Depression, that uh, for the most part, were not true. Um, it wasn't the case that they were taking excessive risk in order to pay high interest rates and that abolishing the payment of interest on deposits uh, was uh, uh, essential to avoiding trouble. Uh, it wasn't the case that their investment affiliates were dragging them down. Most of the glass, the arguments that informed the Glass-Steagall Act sounded kind of plausible, apparently that sounded very plausible to a lot of people. But investigations since have shown that those lines uh, don't, those dots didn't connect nearly as well as the proponents of Glass-Steagall uh, made them appear to connect. Uh, the real problems of the U.S. banking were much more mundane problems of the sort we were talking about before, the lack of diversification, etc., it's also uh, uh, true that people exaggerated the extent to which bank failures were contagious. You know, a bank fails somewhere and everybody starts running on all the banks in the area and pretty soon they're running on all the banks in the whole country. Well, there were limited contagions in some of the banking crises of the 30s in Detroit and others, but they didn't, they didn't extend all that far and wide. The one time when it looked like everybody lost faith in all the banks. Sorry, I have a bug that flew in front of me. The one time when uh, that seemed to have happened, or many people think it happened, was in February 1933, culminating in the bank holiday of early March 1933. But the true story there is that people started to lose confidence in the government's willingness to maintain the gold peg. So what happened was a run on gold. This was in connection mm. with the fact that FDR was about to come into office and he was uh, uh, justifiably in some ways, he didn't want to commit himself to maintaining the gold standard. And the good news there, I guess you could say, was an honest fellow and he didn't really know whether they'd be able to keep the gold standard or not. The bad news is if you don't say you're going to keep the gold standard, well, guess what happens? <laughs> People are going to say, well, maybe you won't. I'll have my gold now, please. And so you had a massive run. That was the run of the February 33. It didn't ultimately have much to do with loss of confidence in the banks that were still, <laughs> still uh, around then. Most of the bad ones had already failed. It was, every, it was all about the confidence in the government's willingness, approximately the Federal Reserve's willingness, to continue to convert dollars into gold coin at the historically promised rate that was that yeah well this would be this would almost be an argument for um for having some sort of uh, centralization then because if any bank can be can have a run right even good banks uh you know uh, the, there should be some uh, central backing that could can come in and provide that that but, put but in this case they were running on all the yeah. private banks because they didn't trust the central bank right so they had yeah. to run on their banks to get federal reserve notes 
Then they ran on the Fed with the notes, but they had to go to their <laughs> banks to get Federal Reserve notes in the first place. So with this trust of the central bank spread to the rest of the banking system, quite the contrary of the usual lender of last resort, you know, story. And, and, uh, um, and by the way, whenever people talk about, oh, central banks are the only banks you can trust because other banks can fail to honor their promises, since 1933, and certainly since 1971, the main reason that's true is because the central banks have all broken their promises already. You can't not redeem a note that you've already stopped redeeming. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. Once I say to you, sorry, you can't have your gold. Well, from then on, you're never going to stage a run on my, on my bank because <laughs> I've already failed in essence. Uh, so every fiat money or all the early fiat monies of the 20th century were just uh, sus permanently suspended uh, currencies of, uh, that were once promises to pay precious metal. So all the central banks are successful in avoiding failure because they already fail. So, I mean, what does it mean for, uh, for stable coins today? I mean, we were talking about the, the, the crisis issue a little bit before and uh, kind of the understanding for um, the orthodox view is that it doesn't really matter what kind of bank is being created. Uh, it's always going to have some sort of breakdown or crisis in the future, which will affect depositors. There'll be a run on the bank, and then uh, there'll be a loss of confidence yeah. well, in the system. Well, as I said, I mean, you know, I, this is this is a, a complete caricature of how banks, when they're allowed to prosper without mm -hmm. unwise regulations, it's just not true that they're all that failure prone. But right. it's when the government mucks things up, you start getting a lot more bank failures. Uh, it's almost that the uh, that when there's the implicit put from the government that banks go out and engage in sort of higher leveraged, higher speculative lending, uh, which then creates that what you're talking about, the systemic contagion, like what we saw in 2008, where, you know, the first banks to fail were not U.S. banks after the collapse of the, the, the mortgage-backed security market. I think it was like you had Icelandic banks and Scottish banks and uh, you know banks that were all the way around the world who were exposed to this you know uh, bad accounting and bad debt from these mortgage or in, like well sorry it wasn't even it wasn't even uh, there was no bad debt none of these mortgage backed securities ever failed it was more just the the ability or the inability of the the market to price them correctly uh, which led to the uh, these issues. Well, yeah, being so, a bank and having assets and nobody knows what they're worth is not a good yeah. situation to be in. But the story yeah. of the mortgage-backed securities is a very involved one. Of course, uh, we could go into it, but remember so I, that I think these, that things I, were rated, so, these things were rated as being as, uh, by regulators as well as by the mm -hmm. rating agencies as being as safe as, essentially as safe as treasury securities. It was an absurd yeah. uh, treatment. And unfortunately, uh, many, many private uh, institutions and pension funds and banks alike and others uh, took took these uh, ratings as uh, being uh, uh, totally reliable. But I, it should be said that even then, in the United States at least, there was no systemic bank run. There were certain banks that were in mm -hmm. bad trouble. 
all the other banks were gaining deposits. They were being flooded by deposits being taken out of the away from the bad apples and into the remaining banks. The government then decided to call all the big banks into a little powwow where they basically told them, you're all going to get bailout money whether you need it or like it or not, because we don't want uh, to be giving the bailout money only to the banks that really are in deep doo-doo because we don't want to make them look bad. And that was yeah. why it appeared to people that all the banks were in trouble because they both, they were, they were forced, many of them, to accept uh, a government bailout that they didn't need or use and that they mostly paid back as soon as they were able to or allowed to. So anyway, but that's, that's a systemic, truly systemic banking crisis based on sheer panic by the public without any other factors uh, uh, contributing uh, are exceedingly rare. I think you can't really come up with any truly pristine example of that. That's an economist's theory that is based on watching uh, It's a Wonderful Life too often and, and instead of looking at the actual empirical record of bank runs. So coming into the uh, modern world of stablecoins, you know, the current setup that we have now is you have a bunch of different uh, individual private issuers. Uh, who have um, differing uh, collateral backing, right? So you look at uh, like USDC, it's a mixture of cash and short-term securities. Uh, Tether has a also cash and short-term securities, plus they have commercial paper as well too, uh, which is unidentified. Uh, and then you know they there's a there's a bunch of other ones which I don't want to get into, but they all have a mixture of these kind of assets that sit in their balance sheet. Uh, and they're all kind of valued at a dollar, uh, but you know, the, I, th I think most of the issues that people would raise is that there's not there's not enough disclosure, mm -hmm. or uh, they're they're not banks, they're not registered banks, mm -hmm. uh, they don't provide FDIC or FDIC insurance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, these are uninsured in banks. So, is this like when you when you think about like a a new private money existing mm -hmm. uh, for the 21st century? Does it look like how these these stablecoin banks have have been built, or should it be based on something different? So, so in the old days, if you wanted to be a successful bank and the government let you, you issued, let's say it was a gold standard, <clears throat> you issued your notes and deposits based on gold, and you did what you could to make it uh, easy for people to redeem your IOUs in gold uh, directly or through a clearinghouse that you might seek membership in. And the idea was to be a, a, a member in good standing of the dollar payments network, to be part of that network, to be plugged into all the facilities that contributed to the ease of people converting your IOUs into gold, including other banks. And we've seen the evolutionary process of how banks uh, uh, contributed to such networks, helped build the clearinghouses, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I have to say all this because now we live in the United States in the world where the basic dollar is not a gold or silver unit. It's Federal Reserve notes. Also, the Federal Reserve operates as the supplier of those units 
the ultimate is in charge of the ultimate means of settlement among other banks. It owns and creates the ultimate settlement media. So today, to be plugged into the dollar network, to really be part of it, and to really make your IOUs equivalent to other dollars in that network, including the stuff the Fed issues itself, which is the, you know, the final, you know, the defining dollars, whether you think they're any good or not is a different issue, right? Uh, you want to be plugged into the Fed's settlement network. Well, guess what? Today, so far, to do that, first of all, you need to be a bank. You need to have a bank charter, the bank uh, or depository institutions charter, to be more precise. The Federal Reserve Act does not authorize it to give master accounts to other than depository institutions with a few very special exceptions like the U.S. Treasury. So, uh, so one barrier to stablecoin issuers, and here we're talking about issuers of redeemable stablecoins, right? Algorithmic stablecoins, in theory, are independent. They can, they're trying to do their thing without having to plug into the network without having to rely on active redeemability of their IOUs, which in fact, their, their tokens aren't really IOUs in the usual sense. All right. So let's mm -hmm. put them aside. Uh, you have to be a depository institution, not only that, but several, uh, companies that either each issue or otherwise deal with stable coins that have secured some kind of depository institution charters, typically often uh, special charters, not standard bank charters, have applied to the Fed for master accounts, which is essential for being plugged into the dollar payment legacy system. And the Fed has sat on their applications notoriously for long periods. We're talking about more than a year, several years. And so they can't get in. They cannot get in. Until they get in, they're never going to have the complete, uh, tight redemption arrangements, settlement arrangements that are enjoyed by other private suppliers of official U.S. dollar substitutes. So they're at a competitive disadvantage to them. And so I think if we want to have something analogous to the successful free banking systems of the past, like those of Canada and Scotland, where you had a bunch of private banks issuing their own circulating tokens made of paper, uh, not digital, that were equivalent and treated as equivalent to specie, gold or silver by the public, because they were no questions asked currency that circulated everywhere at their full value. You need to eliminate these barriers to entry into the legacy clearing and settlement system that is overseen by the Fed and that depends on the dollars it creates. That's what's lacking today. And so it's another case where if, if, if stable coins, apart from the algorithmic ones, if redeemable stable coins take tether, for example, aren't always commanding exactly a dollar's worth of value. It's partly because of the redemption policies of the stablecoin issuers themselves. As you know, as your audience knows, mm. Tether, you have to have a lot of Tethers before you can redeem. Redeem. <laughs> but it, and other, there are other factors as well. 
but it also uh, is a result of the inability of stablecoin issuers to plug into the U.S. dollar payment system. If they could, I believe that those that did so would drive the tethers out of business, and uh, and uh, and then it would between be between those par valued, plugged in, fully integrated stablecoins, and the um, algorithmic stable coins that that don't rely on redemption they could fight it out for the market or for different niches of the market depending on their other attributes that's what i think i i would i would um disagree a little bit because the way that i see something like tether existing is is almost like a privatized euro dollar yes um so for offshore entities who want to have dollar access but are are worried about oh, yes yes uh, connections yeah, yeah. to yeah. to, you are to the right. US government you are right yeah. sam i i concede the point there are for all the the there are some shortcomings that are notorious about tether we don't know its asset composition yeah. as much as we'd like we keep learning little driblets of it it isn't easy to redeem etc but it is it is outside of the purview of many regulations that for certain users and certain purposes are ones they'd rather not have to abide by and it's you're absolutely yeah. right a stablecoin issuer that was plugged into the US network and had access to the fed would certainly also have to comply with know your customer and other such regulations and that wouldn't suit everybody so you're quite right Sam, there would be a place for the tethers or something like them, or perhaps that would be the niche for algorithmic stable coins ultimately yeah. to capture that don't depend on being plugged into the U.S. regulatory fiat money network. That's yeah. I don't think that I don't think the the regulators see. You know, I I think they see the current instantiation of how these stable coins have been set up is like, okay, you have Tether and USDC, which exist only in this small little space of crypto, right? Yes. They're not being used in the wider economy. Mm -hmm. They're they're really in this like closed loop system where they they don't really affect anything else, yeah. right? Um, I think the bigger fear for them is is a company like Facebook or Google or or any of the big tech giants essentially coming out and saying, oh, hey, we're gonna we're going to make an internationalized uh, unit of account yeah. medium exchange that you can use on our platform. Yeah, Here you go. You already have access to it. Everybody has a bank account now. You know, just send us money and we're going to give you Facebook dollars, right? Yes. Uh, that, I, I think that's the thing that scares them more because oh, in order to have, yes. yeah, because in order to have that system, you're moving beyond just, I think Facebook set up originally, they wanted to have a basket of currencies, yes. uh, you know, it's much like an SDR. Uh, which they would then manage and minister. And based on their size and being able to reach 2 billion people immediately through all the apps that they have, uh, I think the, the, the fear from central bankers around the world was that now, oh, hey, we would have this private entity which, which have the same scope and ability to affect monetary policy as us. And so we would lose those transmission transmission mechanisms yeah. uh, that we could affect uh, our, our policy with. So, uh, yeah, in principle... If some, if Americans were to switch from the dollar to some other payment medium that is not the dollar, a basket medium would not be the same, it would be a distinct medium. Of course, uh, the U.S. monetary authorities would lose some control, just as the Venezuelan monetary authorities have lost control <laughs> of their currency. But 
this only happens if your currency is crappy to begin with. Why would people, uh, you know, it's costly to quit a well-established, deeply entrenched currency network, which the dollar certainly is. I personally mm -hmm. don't think Facebook, with that original plan that it had of the basket, posed any threat. What, what, what might be more scary, because it's more plausible uh, 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 a scenario, would be a dollar-based Facebook currency that exploits a very well-established Facebook network to quickly become a widely used payment medium. But you know what? I don't think that that's a big deal either. Because if it's a dollar-based medium, then it's still ultimately controlled by or subject to the monetary policy uh, decisions of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve would still be able to control inflation. It would still be able to do anything else it does because ultimately the scarcity of official Federal Reserve dollars is what drives the inflation rate, no matter how mm -hmm. many other substitutes you have. So uh, that's why PayPal doesn't undermine the, the U.S. dollar system. It's, 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 uh, it's scarier for banks and other providers of private currency, private dollars, to face a big competitor like Facebook supplying stuff that looks just like their deposits and may gain popularity very quickly. But it's the same kind of scare that they faced and that the government opposed, uh, that the government uh, uh, finally squelched when Walmart wanted to do banking, when they wanted to do a bank charter. So the difference between Walmart and Facebook in these two cases, it's not very great. It's really right. just you have a rival that has uh, a chance of gaining a huge market share. It's scary for the banks. It doesn't undermine monetary policy. I think that it's really ultimately fear of competition that's driving the government's interference with these developments. Not so much that the dollar would cease to be a, you know, something that the Federal Reserve could control. I don't really think that's true. Well, what about in the in the respect of where I think the argument against Facebook creating its own money is that commercial interests and banking interests should be separated somehow? Well, that goes uh, back to Glass-Steagall, as you know. Right. And it's based mostly on mythical claims about the clash of uh, the... Uh, a conflict of interest between the commercial part of the business and the non-commercial. But if you actually look back at the past, uh, you can't find examples of exceedingly, it's exceedingly difficult to find examples mm -hmm. of a commercial firm that engaged in banking activities where uh, in order to uh, save the commercial end of the firm, the bank was begged, well, <laughs> was exploited. It usually was yeah. the other way around. And let's face it, Glass-Steagall only exists in the United States. Most countries don't have anything like it. And yet mm. we managed to go around pretending that somehow if you were to allow it, it would result in all kinds of disastrous practices. It, it, this is really extremely insular thinking. What all these, either all these countries are missing, they're not noticing all the terrible things that that uh, universal banking results in, um, or uh, or we're exaggerating the risks of allowing it. It's either one or the other. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I see the difference between 
yeah. I mean, I agree with you, like on what you're saying about in the in reference to how things were back in the 20s and 30s. I mean, the thing that is scary for me now in our with our modern digital dollar is just the ability to have this complete insight um, and and lack of anonymity. Uh, when it comes ah, to, yes. to well, using money. Now, that's a different story, and, of course. Yeah. And uh, privacy and, and, issues and the, are, are very complicated. Yeah. It's a double-edged sword, of course, Sam, because governments can snoop too and, and can interfere with our privacy. So pick your poison. But I think it, we need to have a debate about what's the best way to preserve privacy. And let's remember yeah. that governments don't want to preserve kind, certain kinds of privacy. On the, on the contrary, they're very anxious that we should not have privacy uh to conduct certain kinds of transactions it's yeah. a complicated issue well i i think we're we're coming to the end of the time I, I i unfortunately this is not enough time to cover everything that i wanted to to speak about but i think we got some really nice topics uh through here um i i really appreciate your viewpoints on um on private monies and and how they can exist and it's just through uh uh, owners regulation and and laws that we have that uh, they're not able to exist freely and that we have this kind of insular system here within the United States. Um, hopefully, uh, we get a chance on a later episode to, to speak with Gordon and Jang about their yes, viewpoints. Absolutely. Um, I'd love that, Sam. <laughs> and I, But I enjoyed being able to get started yeah. uh, today. Of course, these conversations usually have to continue because uh, there's an awful lot of uh, there's an awful lot of conventional wisdom that needs to be plowed through. Yeah. Well, I, I, I mean, there's so much more that I'd like to speak about. I mean, I, I, if you're welcome to come back on in a future episode, um, I think the, we, you know, we didn't really get to talk about like how the, like are the modern stablecoin banks, like the wildcat banks, you know, should they be regulated in the same way? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and more about um, kind of, getting to a deeper understanding of what a real private money would look like today. Um, and it, is that just holding short-term securities in cash or is that something else? I mean, I think these are really kind of deeper discussions that, that we should get into to have, uh, you know, figure out what would be the most market competitive and, and desirable money for, for people in, in our modern day. Well, let's do it, Sam, so, uh, from Spain. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be coming from Spain in your next episode. So That's great. Well, Dr. Dr. Selgin, thank you so much for coming on. I, I appreciate it so much, and uh, we'll see you on a future episode. Thanks a lot, Sam. Bye-bye. Thank you.